For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Song of the Grasshopper. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. A person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world in tin feet square an old man illumines forms in their nature a mahiyana bodhisattva trusts without doubt the middling or lowly can't help wondering will this hut perish or not perishable or not the original master is present not dwelling south or north east or west firmly based on steadiness it can't be surpassed a shining window below the green pines jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it just sitting with head covered all things are at rest thus this mountain monk doesn't understand it all Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats, trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions. Bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. 
Our first woman ancestor, great teacher, Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher, Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher, Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher, Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajnaparamita. When he is ready, uh, Nyo-san will be giving the talk to me. Good evening, everybody. Are you able to hear me? I'd like to apologize in advance here at the beginning on a couple of fronts. First, um, I am, for the first time, I have Zoom and my notes up on the screen simultaneously, uh, which means I don't have much of Zoom happening right now. So I won't be able to see who's here. I think it's a small group, which is great, um, given what's going to happen. And, um, um, uh, you know, so, but I won't be able to respond to how people look. So I apologize for that. I also apologize because um, I have a situation I cannot see my computer properly without my glasses and to read my notes um, to be able to do that, I have to kind of lean in. So you'll probably see me doing all these kind of disconcerting things. So sorry about that. Third, uh, and most importantly, um, uh, I'm a little uneasy because I'm going to do two things in this talk that I really probably shouldn't. Um, you know, first off, I'm gonna I'm gonna relate to you a dream that I had. Second of all, I'm going to discuss a koan. Um, why these things are problematic. Um, other people's dreams are rarely very interesting, um, so I don't expect my dream will be terribly interesting to you. Um, nonetheless, uh, I think that there are things about the dream that connect with the con that I'm going to talk about. Um, that, and also, um, in a very general sense, may, I don't know, we have some fairly longtime practitioners here. Some of these issues may have been resolved. Um, but I think just at the base level of the dream, uh, it, evinces some anxieties that can come up in practice that may not be unfamiliar to people. So this is just to say, I'm going to do, I'm just, you know, I'm not wanting to analyze my dream, uh, you know, 
Uh, it's a little problematic. You know, you may see things that I do not see in the dream that I'd rather you didn't. Um, but I would just like to stay really at the surface level um, in hopes that it, it will evoke something you can connect to and will also connect with the koan. Uh, the reason I'm reluctant to talk about a koan uh, is I too old, actually. The main one being that um, I very rarely have any insight into koans uh, to speak of. Um, I love exploring them, but, um, and, and two, it's a koan that has been much discussed in our sangha. Um, and so there might be certain redundancies and there may be certain things that people will disagree with, um, or think that I'm getting wrong, which is fine. Um, but so the koan too, I'm going to act like the dream. Um, I just want to approach it at a very, very surface level. So both with regard to the dream and to the koan, you know, if we want to put it in Freudian terms, we're talking about manifest content here. We're not talking about the deep underneath meanings, et cetera, et cetera. So please bear with me. Um, and know the, uh, the, the koan is not a uh, dream within a dream, which Kaigen has talked about a number of times. It's, uh, uh, or the, it's not, that fascicle of Dogen, it's, it's, um, case number 89 of the Book of Serenity, um, Dongshan's No Grass, which Daigen and others have talked about. Okay. This dream I had, um, it came to me today when I was trying to develop a talk, um, I had nothing burning on my mind. Um, but the dream was actually about two years ago. And it seems to have to do from what I see uh, with, like I said, general anxieties about practice and, you know, where we practice and how we practice. So here we go. These are my notes from two year, two or three years ago. Um, and I should say, um, this is not a life-altering dream for me. I always try to make a note of it when, when I dream about practice or teachers because I've had two or three dreams or maybe, that have truly been life-altering. This is not one of those. Um, it's just a, a dream. Okay, so I enter a place of practice. You know, where, where is it? In my thoughts, my understanding of the dream is it, that it's ancient dragon, but the physical space is um, Rockefeller Chapel, uh, uh, where some of you are familiar with this big cavernous space, very different. Um, so there's a little confusion there. Um, and typically, you know, Taigen used to come there once a month, but uh, at this time, uh, I would be the person who might be at the front of the room and might be doing a talk, as I'm doing here. But as I enter the space, it's not, it's, I see that actually somebody's already in that seat. Who is it? It's Joko Beck, somebody who, whom I've read, but I never met when she was alive. Um, and in fact, I have no seat. I'd have nowhere to sit. Uh, but then someone hands me a diagram with number four on it, you know, whatever that is. And somehow this tips me off to where I am supposed to sit. Uh, so I start like looking around, trying to find that seat. And then I notice that the, the, the room is completely chaotic, full of people. It's like a party. It is a party. And, um, so I have this thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm in Boulder, Colorado, you know, so, so these are already, we've got like three places of practice going here. There's, there's ancient dragon, there's Rockefeller chapel, and then there's Boulder, Colorado, where I 
used to go years and years ago um, in practice in the sort of Vajradhatu context, uh, what later became Shambhala. Um, okay. You know, and then I think, oh, wait a second. I'm the, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to be up front. I'm the Eno um, here. So I asked, yeah, and there's all this stuff going on. So I, so I asked someone to be quiet. You know, I just sort of say, you know, so I think that's my role here. Um, but it's completely pointless. And I go to take my seat. Um, but when I, when I get there, I see that the, the Zabuton is completely covered with really thick reddish brick dust. And in fact, there's no Zafu. So I take it outside and the Zabuton, Zabuton morphs into a carpet or a comforter. And as I hold it, a friend of mine from my Korean Zen days starts beating, beating it and, and knocking the dust out of it. Um, and, uh, but then I, then I noticed that. So, so, so here's a fourth place. Here's a fourth place for my practice history. Um, and then this old friend of mine, uh, you know, I, I noticed he's really angry, um, as he's doing this. And it's like, I'm, I'm like, is he angry at me? What's up here? Anyway, I go back into the Rockefeller Chapel. And as I walk in, there's a woman in robes on a Zafu and she grabs my arm. So I bend down to uh, whisper to her, see what's up. And she starts expanding a teaching. In fact, the, uh, the fire sermon, which I'll say a little bit about below. Um, and her Zafu and Zabutan sort of morph into a comforter. And not only that, she's trying to pull me under it as she continues to recite the, uh, the, the fire sermon. And somehow her robes uh, morph into this kind of quite sheer and translucent uh, negligee. And uh, she pulls my hand and she puts it on her breast. And uh, I'm like, you know, I mean, so she has my full attention, but I'm thinking like, whoa, <laughs> this is not appropriate in this, you know, this situation. So I sort of like uh, pull away. Now let me see if I can get my screen to shift. Um, too far. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I'm clumsy, go back to clumsily trying to fold my, uh, my, uh, comforter into something I can sit on. And then I notice that in front of me, um, somebody has placed this kind of wheelchair between me and where the altar is and where I guess Joko Beck still is. And, uh, all kinds of stuff have fallen out of the back of it. There's a water bottle on the floor and a little oxygen tank and orange, you know, so I start trying to put this stuff together. And there's like also this black kind of cover over it. It's sort of like a 19th century buggy or something. It's weird. Um, um, and, and then I noticed that the floor is strewn with hundreds of Legos, which I start trying to sweep up sweep away, pile up so I can have a place to bank it down, but I can't quite manage. And meanwhile, my efforts to do so have really upset this little kid. And there's a mother, uh, the kid's mother, sitting a few feet away. And it's like just glaring at me, like, you know, how dare you upset my child? So I, I just sit down. Um, um, thinking that I can always go practice somewhere else. You know, this is getting to be a bit much. I could always go practice somewhere else. And then Joko starts to speak at the front of the room, 
She's flanked by two other teachers, but I can't see her over this buggy in the wheelchair, and I can't really hear her over all the noise and the activity, and I wake up. So, then I wake up. I do not mean here, like we read in these stories, and then there was a great awakening. I mean, I open my eyes and go out and uh, get my morning coffee. But when I woke up, I had these questions, you know, what what is the right time and place for practice? What What's the right circumstances? Um, and what is this thought that maybe I can go somewhere else to practice? What does practice even look like? So thank you for bearing with that. That was my dream. Um, and like I said, I think it reflects a place where maybe others of us tonight have been, um, you know, the, something that we might someday experience in our practice. You know, we don't sometimes really know exactly where we are or what we are doing, and things are a mess. We don't know our place or our role in the situation, the mandala. We can't see the teacher. We can't hear the teachings clearly. Someone is angry. Someone else seems to want something. There's dust everywhere and Legos. So in the dream, this seductive nun or dakini or whatever she was is expounding the fire sermon. Now, some of you probably know this. This was Buddha's third sermon, supposedly. Um, and in it, he... Um, it's called the fire sermon. The, the, the more correct or, or fuller translation is wonderful. It's, um, discourse on the manner of being aflame. At least according to Donald Lopez and, um, Olcott, uh, Buswell, Robert Buswell. Um, and what this sermon talks about, um, you know, he described, he says, the Buddha says that the, the six sense bases, the six sensory objects and the six corresponding mental phenomenon, um, he describes those as burning with fire or passion, the fire of aversion, uh, the fire of ignorance, the fire of delusion, all these kinds of things. And then he talks about the, the sort of 12 fold representation of dependent co-arising, the, the 12 nidanas, um, and he talks, so talking about things like, uh, uh, sense or contact, sense, thirst, um, leading to, um, ignorance and hence propelling further birth. Um, and in the dream, um, uh, you know, like with, with this strange experience with this woman in the dream, it's like, I'm not, um, it's interesting because I'm not exactly bursting into flames there, but, um, like I said, I'm really interested. I mean, like I said, I mean, I, mean, I can't help it. You know, I've just it's got my attention or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, so it's this kind of instantiation of, of what the, what the fire sermon is talking about. So the question arises, well, how do we practice with these kinds of things? You know, here, as in many 
uh, non-Mahayana texts, the suggestion is that we practice to extinguish these flames and in some sense extinguish ourselves, you know, and the Mahayana and Zen, you know, accepts the truth of, of this. Um, oh gosh, I'm having trouble here. I'm going to expand my screen so I will not see you at all. Um, and then I'll come back to you when I finish. I think it'll be a little easier. <clears throat> yeah, so, so as I was saying, the, uh, you know, the Mahayana and Zen, you know, accepts the truth of this up to a point. Uh, that in some sense, <laughs> put it one way, in some sense, we all get burned in the process of living, um, and that we need to find ways to work productively, wholesomely, whatever, with this kind of a situation in non-destructive ways, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, um, as we will know from the Heart Sutra, um, you know, that which should in part addresses precisely this whole system, you know, in the, uh, and, and in a way problematizes it, rejects it, you know, no eye, no ears, no throat, uh, uh, no taste, no, no, uh, uh, no objects of sight, no objects of sound, uh, you know, no, you know, sense consciousness, uh, down to no mind consciousness. I mean, he completely undoes that in a way. Um, and it really doesn't imagine a situation where we exactly, uh, where we can work our way out of causes and conditions and somehow stand away from the flame, so to speak. Um, you know, and instead it raises, Mahayana raises this, the bodhisattva ideal of, you know, compassionate involvement, staying precisely within the burning world. Um, and we get images of the Buddha sitting <coughs> in the middle of flames. <clears throat> the Zen tradition tends to lower the drama of this flame energy imagery and in its place we hear a lot about dust and weeds and grasses um and since for example Suzuki Roshi and Zen Mind Beginner's mind uh talks about mind weeds and there there are many stories about this a few weeks ago Howard talked about you know the story from the platform sutra about the dust but I think all of these things sort of you know, they're multivalent, they can have a variety of meanings, but in some sense, they all refer to the same things. And, and they're the entanglements, they're, they're, they're the things that we might perceive as impediments to our practice, as, um, problems that keep us enmeshed and unhappy in ways that we don't want to be. So, case 89. Um, no grass. So, um, I'll just, I'll just read it briefly. The introduction by Wansong. 
move and you bury your body 10,000 feet deep. Don't move and sprouts grow right where you are. You must cast off both sides and let the middle go. Then you must buy some sandals and travel some more before you really attain realization. Um, you will recognize you must cast off both sides and let the middle go. That's very close to uh, Shirto's uh, not getting stuck in, outside, inside, or in between. You know, Shirto probably said this, I guess it's probably 150 years uh, before. <clears throat> no, wait, no more than that. Um, uh, that would take us to Dongshan, but for one song, so we're probably talking like a difference of 300 years here. Anyway, the main case, Dongshan said to the assembly, it's the beginning of autumn, the end of summer, and you brethren will go, some to the east, some to the west. You must go where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles. And then he also said, but where there's not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? Shishong said, going out the gate, immediately there's a grass, there's grass. And Dayang said, I'd say, not even going out the, out the gate, still the grass is boundless. Um, I think it's important to, you know, if we're not careful, we, we might think these guys are all standing around talking to each other. This is not the case. Um, and in the commentary, uh, we're told that um, some monk that had been with Dongshan, whom, you know, we all know here is, is the founder of the, uh, the Chinese founder of our tradition. Uh, somebody who, had, a monk who had been with him, goes to this other fellow, Shishuang, how it said, Shishuang, um, who... Uh, elsewhere and he makes this comment that um, going out the gate immediately there's grass um, this monk later reports that to Dongshan and Dongshan says yeah that's you know essentially that's uh, that's pretty good um, this guy you know will uh, I mean he in fact later becomes a teacher so it's important it's important to know who Shishuang was he was a monk that had been um, in my understanding, um, uh, laicized uh, during the per persecutions of Buddhism in China in about 845, he'd been kicked out, uh, as thousands were. Um, and he was, says in the commentary, he was living with potters. I presume he was maybe earning his keep as a potter. Um, he's no longer a monk. He's no longer in a monastic situation. He's out in the world. And, um, and then Dayang, uh, so these, those two guys are contemporaries. And I don't know exactly who Dayang is. Maybe Taigan will tell us later, but, um, uh, in, in the commentary, it says that later, uh, as he goes on to say, so this, they're not together, um, but they are, uh, in conversation, at least in our minds, um, So one kind of reading of this koan, which is maybe all I'm really capable of, is this. As, you know, people leave the protected environment of the monastery, Dongshan advises them to continue practice where there's not a blade of grass to be found. 
you know, stay clear of the weeds, uh, avoid, find a place to practice where there's no, you know, you're not going to be bothered by greed, hate, and delusion, <clears throat> by the hindrances, the obstructions, all this apparatus of problem that we can have. Um, but then he asks, how can you go to such a place? Um, this question might um, be taken in two ways, maybe both at the same time. It's like, how will you now continue to practice out in the world as the monks are leaving without getting caught in the weeds, tangled up in the grasses, et cetera? And, you know, how, how can you go to such a place? In other words, is such a thing even possible? Is there a place with no weeds? I think that's one possible reading. I don't think that's the one that we usually understand. Um, we would expect Shishuang to be quite interested in this kind of a question, because after all, he's been forced to leave monastic life behind uh, for the time being. Um, so he's going to be curious, interested about what the possibilities of continuing his practice outside the temple are, or whether it's even possible. For him to say that the grass appears right outside the gate may simply be reporting his own experience when he's out in the world, you know, and he's, you know, he's like been shoved out of the nest, um, you know, and it may be him saying that if you're out in the world, uh, greed, hate, and delusion, all those things are going to be part of the scenario and you're going to have to, you know, sort of implicitly learn to deal with them. And when he reports this to Dongshan, he improve, approves, Dongshan approves. And as the commentary tells us later, Shishuan does indeed, is able to return to the monastery and becomes the uh, uneminent teacher, um, says he has 1,500 students. That's a few. Um, da Yang, speaking later, as we're told, and I don't know how much later, is kind of the outlier here. He says that the grass is boundless, even if you don't step outside the gate. In other words, you know, greed, hate, delusion, do not respect the boundaries we set up, you know, the monastery gate. And we could, you know, we can take this on any scale. We can take it as the monastery gate. We can take it as what happens when we stand up from our zafu. Um, uh, but this idea that we're going to erect a barrier or some kind of line and say, we're going to stay over here, all that stuff, you stay over there. It's just not, uh, it's just not what most of us experience in practice. Um, in the added comment section of the koan, uh, Wang San's response to Dong Shan's original statement is, he is luring cats into a dry well. You know, one way to understand this comment, I think, is to, 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 is that Wang Shan, in fact, is saying in response to Dong Shan's original statement, you know, this is a, essentially a dead end. Um, you're not going to find that place. Um, you're going to have to handle it in a different way than just trying to sidestep it. To lead people to believe that they might find a place inside or outside of formal practice where they will not have to attend to the problems and ambiguities of being human is to lead them down an unproductive path. This is reinforced, perhaps, by his comment in response to Dayan's statement that even going out of the gate, the grass 
is boundless. Even, not even going out the gate, the grass is boundless. Wang San says rather personally, in response to this, there's no place to escape. And indeed, Hongzhi suggests in his verse, uh, follows later, that we, quote, follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. That's really a evocative phrase. That is, I think, don't avoid the dust. Don't avoid the flames. Don't avoid the, gla- the grasses. Don't avoid the Legos on the floor. Whatever metaphor you have uh, for the messiness of our lives that we wish to use. Um, ah, where are we? My computer keeps jumping all over the place. Um, Wang Song says in his introduction to the case, I'm not getting close to the end here, I think, um, uh, speaking to us as readers, you must cast off both sides and let the middle go. Then you must buy some sandals and travel some more. So forget those boundaries, forget inside, outside, all that. And it seems implicit there that Wang Song is saying, you know, wherever you are, that, that is the place of practice. Um, and this is, this is strongly asserted in Genjo Khan, uh, where Dogen says, you know, here is the place, here the way unfolds. And, you know, that might sound like kind of news, but it shouldn't. It's, it's a necessary truth. Our, our lives never unfold, our lives and consequently our practice never unfolds anywhere else but in our lives, right? It's just, it just, there's just no option. You know, we, we can kid ourselves about this, but, uh, it's just true. Um, you know, and so in practical terms, according to, you know, our circumstances and temperament and so on, you know, we might seek out, you know, certain circumstances of practice, try to engineer some special situation, you know, meet, uh, you know, I mean, all this stuff, I mean, it's serious. It's true on the one hand. You know, we look for the right teacher for us, all these kinds of things. Um, you know, um, in nor- more normal times, many of us would be, have driven up to through the snow tonight to sit together in an environment where perhaps a little bit less noise at home. Mine's very quiet. Um, or where we might feel the sort of warm support of people gathered around us, all these things. And, uh, you know, when those times come, I think most of us will cherish that all the more. But it's important to remember that in a very real sense, um, a monastery or a temple is not a privileged place of practice. You know, no matter how much being able to practice in such a place might reflect our own privilege, it's not a privileged place of practice. It's a particular mode of practice. And what this means is that neither is the so-called world a lesser or inferior place of practice. Um, we have to take our practice with us wherever we go, if, if we're going to follow through on it, um, which is always an option, right? Um, Don Sean asked, but where there is not an inch of grass for 10,000 miles, how can you go? 
It's an honest question. And one possible answer, as I said before, is that you can't. Because for all we know from our own experience, there may be no such a place. At least from my experience, I always got the weeds. I always got the grasses. I always got the dust. Um, and that's, I think, okay um, in some sense. You know, um, if we make it a condition of our practice, our willingness to pursue practice, that, you know, we have to have a situation where those things do not exist. Or I think even if we imagine that such a place is a destination, there's no dust, there's no grass, um, I think it's almost inevitable that we're going to become really discouraged in our practice. <sighs> At some point, and, you know, if for no other reason that wherever we go, we're going to be tracking grass in our shoes and seeds in our hair. And, you know, we're being tracking in all kinds of dots. That's just the way it works. You know, if you go to Tassajara, if you go to Japan, when you sit down in a cushion, you know, all that stuff, all that, you know, hitogomi to evoke a uh, Japanese word is going to be there. Um, so I think it is best not to think too much about such situations. I mean, yes, um, Yes, we want to look for the right place. We want to look for the right sangha where we're home. We want to look for the right teachers, even if we can't always understand what they're saying, right? Even if we can't always hear um, or see, um, you know, we, we, we seek those places out. Um, nonetheless, the deeper truth is that we are always, practice is always and only where we are. And we are always and only whoever we, whoever we are, wherever we are. So whatever imagery we use, scattered Legos, as in my dream, flames, dust, grasses, whatever that stuff is, we will likely encounter it whatever thresholds we cross, coming or going, probably both, coming and going. And you know what? That's fine because this is the opportunity for practice that we've been given. You know, when we think about it, what else would we be practicing with? What other possible environment could there be? Um, but we, we need to see this and act on it. You know, so all these anxieties that like were expressed in my dream, um, uh, you know, who's that person in front of the room? And, you know, I thought I was supposed to be sitting there. Where is my seat? Am I hearing that person correctly? Um, is this my cushion? Is this even the right place? What place is it? Is my robes, are my robes in order? Is it a problem that I'm drawn to this person or that person? That I'm uncomfortable with this person or that person? That another person is angry? Is what I'm doing here practice at all? Um, you know, dust will always settle. You know, grasses will always sprout. Um, and I think it's important for us to come to a point where we don't worry so much about this. So, you know, I'll just close again with, uh, you know, Wong, Wong Kong's uh, opening remark in the introduction, you know, please get yourself some sandals and keep traveling, go further, travel more. So thank you uh, very much. I'll stop there. I'm going to shut down my notes so I can bring up your faces and maybe people have Comments. 
Yes, I want to save those notes. All right. Okay. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> okay, good night, everybody. <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody has something to say. Comments, questions, responses for news on, please. Uh, Mike. Hi, Niazan. Uh Hi, Mike. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Um, you're, well, it reminded me of um, uh, polishing the mirror and how, um, you know, the point is not to make sure the mirror is clean that the dust is always going to be there. Um, and there was another talk that recently where someone talked about how I've been here, um, about how, um, uh, even if a mirror is covered in dust, it's still doing its job because, um, it's reflecting the dust. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, I really like the importance of that dust there, um, uh, resonated with, with your talk. Um, I wanted to ask, um, the Japanese term that you mentioned near the end of your talk, you were talking about the grasses and things that were coming into the temple. What was the term again? Oh, I probably shouldn't have brought brought that up. Um, when, when, as you know, when Japanese people enter their homes, um, they take off their shoes, or you know, when they're out, uh, you know, sometimes they might wear a mask. Um, uh, this is to avoid what's called, you know, hito. Uh, and, and Paul can correct me if I'm wrong here, hitogomi, which is essentially people garbage, uh, <laughs> people dirt. Um, um, and uh, I guess part of what I'm saying is, yeah, when you take off your shoes when you're in a Japanese home, but, uh, you know, don't, don't think you're going to avoid that stuff or that it's even good to avoid that stuff. Thank you. I've never actually heard that term, but it's, it's very descriptive. I used to hear it a lot, maybe because I forgot to take off my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Paul, did you have some other comment? Well, I, I I I do have some some things, some curiosity about uh, about this grass. Uh, I, do you think there was grass growing inside the temple too? You know, that's quite. You know, the way he phrases that, it's a little, or the way it's trans, translated. Uh, Dayang says, "I'd say even not going out of the gate, the grass is still boundless." Um, you know, one, that might be, you don't even have to to step outside the gate to know that out there it's boundless. But I would be inclined to read this as sort of that, you know, you don't have to step outside the gate to know that it's boundless because it's here too. That's how I, that's how I understand it. Tygen, did you raise your yeah, hand? Just, just to, to that point, 
my understanding of that is that he's saying, even before you go outside the gate, right inside the gate, right inside the monastery, to put it that way, yes, there's plenty yes. of grass. And, and grass means, in, in, in that context, it doesn't mean like lawns, it means weeds. So, yes. so there's weeds right inside the monastery. And I don't know if there's anybody else here besides Paul and me who've practiced in monasteries, but the weeds of, and, and of course, Nyozan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Yes. You've been at Tassahara a couple of times. So yeah, right and inside elsewhere. the monastery. And elsewhere, right inside the monastery, uh, there is greed, hate, and delusion um, and competitiveness and, and, uh, concern over status and and so forth and so on. So yeah, you don't have to you don't have to leave the monastery to find the weeds. Yeah. But I think I think there's a distinction between whether you're watering the weeds or whether you're just observing the weeds. Um, there is it's it's the question of whether or not your your practice is being directed from from whether somebody's whether you have a teacher or not, I guess to come right down to it. Is it is it are, is it, are there your weeds that yourself that you're perpetuating or that you're growing, or 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 is somebody somebody else feeding you weeds that you have to learn how to walk on or eat or or deal with? Um, I think I think there's a difference. I think there's a difference there. I think there's a difference in in how we how we perceive how we perceive a, a Buddha, a, the, the Buddha nature. I'm not exactly, I didn't follow the last bit about the Buddha nature with, with what you were said before. Could you explain a little more? Well, it's just that the, the, we have a great capacity to delude ourselves into thinking that, that, that the grass is, exists or doesn't exist or that it's good or it's bad. Um, and if we have, have, a, have, a, have a sangha or a, or a or some have a practice that that is gives us some feedback about about the grass, about whether or not we're clinging to the grass, or whether or not we're attached to the grass, or whether or not the grass is even there, whether it's just in our minds or not. Um, I think it's useful to have some 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 outside feedback, as as these fellows were discussing it as they as they went set out on their journey after practice period, um, and that. And that uh, I don't know that that, that that buying a new pair of sandals. I, that, I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar with this with this with this story, so I don't know. But I would suggest that was meeting finding finding an, a uh, finding a, a place to practice from a different point of view. That's a that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, going back to yeah, that's interesting. You know, going back to your earlier thing. Um, you know, my experience from my time at Tassahara and other places is that, <clears throat> you know, yeah, you know, you're going to uh, be up close and you are going to um, perhaps before you see anything else, you'll see uh, other people's mind weeds and so on. But of course, the whole point of being in that kind of a situation or part of the point of being in that kind of situation to begin with um, is precisely because you get that feedback either from a teacher explicitly or for just the situation where you are enabled to see and then attend to your own um, 
you know, it's very easy. As you said, we've got this great capacity for, for self-delusion. And if we, uh, you know, that's one way to think about, you know, we talk about uh, uh, passion, aggression, and ignorance. One way to think about that ignorance is, is to think about, you know, how much of our lives we spend trying precisely not to see that stuff, trying to put it all elsewhere. Um, and um, anyway, I thought your dream was quite wonderful. And uh, <laughs> I think, I think that would, you could have very well gotten away with reading that, reading that, that koan and then just launching into your dream without any explanation or, or, or apologies or anything. It would have been been quite wonderful. Uh, Do you think, do you think the order should have, should have gone the other way? The koan first and dream later? In my mind, yes. But anyway, because, because one is, what is sort of the formal statement and then yours is sort of the, the, the multifaceted interpretation of it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Next time, uh, if there is next time with this talk. Ed has his hand up. Hey, thanks, Neil. I'm good seeing you. Uh, oh, you know, I hi. Just, yeah. I just, thought, I just thought I'd share with you briefly. As a student, I had a job selling grasses. These were <laughs> native grasses, and they were drought tolerant and so forth, and. There was quite a range in them, and within the variety that um, they displayed, they were very beautiful, actually. But I would constantly have people come into the shop and say, these look like weeds. And I would clarify for them. I would say, well, a weed is, as I understand it, a weed is just a plant that's in the wrong place, or you know, maybe it's an invasive European species and you know, taking over some native plants or whatever. And this one woman said to me, and I'll never forget this, and I guess I was wounded by this, but she said, who do you think you're kidding? It's a <laughs> weed here, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> and to this day, when I, see gra- when I see grasses and I offer to someone that it's a beautiful grass, I, I hesitate. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I just want to I want to say grasses are often experiences weeds and weeds as grasses and and so on and so forth and um there's a there's literally thousands of varieties of grasses and and each one is amazing but none of them very few of them flower enough to show the flower that's Uh, also you know but you make a good point you know that what's you know what is a weed you know uh what's not a weed it's a matter of of context and uh you know, uh, evaluation, you know, I mean, I mean, there's a strand in Mahayana thinking that it's precisely, you know, in a way there's a great beauty to the whole scenario, right? Because it's precisely the weeds that, um, are, you know, it's our delusion. It's our suffering that is the con provides the context for whatever awakening we can have. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Suzuki Roshi talking about mind weeds, and I think that's to the point that uh, part uh, that I, that how he talks about that seems to me that you turn over the mind weeds and they become compost. Exactly. Yeah. We we grow. We are nourished by our struggle with our own 
greed, hate, and delusion, <laughs> or with our own dreams. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my, the weeds as, so the weeds are invasive, and they're also uh, nourishment. And there's a, there's a story about um, the Buddha sent, or so the Buddha sends out Manjushri to, to uh, uh, or Manjushri sends out someone to find a, a, a stalk of medicine and, and, and wherever he goes, everything is medicine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I mentioned, you know, in the dream, this echo of my time in Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, you know, Chogyam Trungpa makes almost an identical point to, uh, to what Suzuki Roshi says about mind weeds. You know, he talks about the manure field of Bodhi, you know, that it's completely, you know, it's actually, I mean, literally our own shit that, that uh, provides the nourishment and the opportunity to blossom into, into Bodhi or awakening. I mean, it's a pretty, that's, you know, I'm sure that's a very controversial, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty extreme thing to say, all these guys. But I think it's true. Uh, wait, I see your hand. Um, well, there's the there's the famous quote about weeds that's often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, I think, which is that a weed is just a flower whose virtues have not yet been discovered. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's familiar with that, um, which is to say that, you know, they're they're Dharma gates, which makes them valuable. Precisely. You know, the number of, uh, you know, sometimes they talk about 108 basic defilements and they talk about, you know, 108 Dharma gates. Point being is uh, those numbers are the same, you know. And practically speaking, Zazen is compost practice, right? We're, We're the the thoughts and feelings arise and turning them over, uh, as Dogen says, we to study the ways to study the self. So we we're stuck in the whatever you want to call it, the compost pit of ourself. And and by just being willing to be present and upright in the middle of that, um, something happens sometimes eventually. Stewing in our own juices. Um I remember a comment somebody made at a one-day sit back in the cynical days. Um, uh, I don't know how, you know, there were several people involved, but uh, what it devolved to was the uh, the great way is not difficult, just avoid pickling and stewing. Well, maybe we should stop now. Is there a last comment or response before we close? Alex? I don't have much of a substantial comment or response to make, but I just wanted to thank you, Neozon, for sharing this talk. Um, Hearing about dreams is always so fascinating. I mean, I have dreams that I had like 15 years ago that I still remember. So thank you for sharing this with us and for sharing your wisdom. Sure. Um, I think Ian 
had his hand up, maybe? I didn't, but I, I wanted to... I, there was something, some question in my mind. I'm, I'm curious about the the sandals, and it brings up images of, of a pilgrimage, but then the weeds are, are everywhere, and there's that saying, like, why do you even need to, you know, go uh, on the dusty trail when, you know, you could just practice right where you're sitting? Um, you know, why, why, why do you need to leave the, the temple and explore the, the, you know, all the many weeds? Why travel to dusty lands, this Dogen says. It was a very good reason. That's because you're stuck in the mud and you need somebody to kick you in the ass and get you out of the mud and move on yeah. down the road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which could happen wherever you are. Wherever you are. It happens more in Chicago, Paul. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think Chicago is where you go when someone kicks you in the ass. I think it's, it's the destination, not the, not, the, not, the, not the leaving place. <laughs> On that note, should we do the four bodhisattva vows and closing announcements? Yeah, I think it's uh, time for that. Uh, give me one moment. I will mute everyone and get the words on the screen. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.